This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Welcome again to uh, Comparative Media Insights, and tonight, Mackenzie Wark is with us from uh, the New School. Ken is Associate Professor and Chair of the Culture and Media Department at Lang College at the New School. He's also Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs there. Um, Ken's, I guess, a true Australian in the sense that he works in a very European way, German critical theory, British cultural studies, and French uh, post-structuralist criticism. He's the author of a number of books. Um, one of the recent ones, 2007, is Gamer Theory. Interesting project because it was, in a certain sense, a collaborative project. It was done online. Uh, there was a lot of chance for people both to critique his work, but also to provide the kinds of expertise that exist in, in niche, uh, among niche players. Um, and it exists online as well as in this sort of hard lockdown form. Um, it's probably best known, I think it's fair to say, for the Hacker Manifesto, or sorry, a Hacker Manifesto, which um, is sort of cyber marks, marks in the era of globalization and um, the domain of the digital where materialities fade and um, regi regimes of ownership are still very much around. Uh, his current work continues a long-term uh, interest in the Situationist International, part of which came out in 50 Years of Recuperation, but uh, He's now linking that up with uh, organizations like nettime.org and their work. So, Ken, show is yours. Thank you. Thank you, William, and uh, thanks for the invitation to come and speak here. Uh, I hope you won't mind if I uh, uh, read some of this. It's been a bit of a long day. I don't, uh, don't want to lose my thread. Uh, so the kind of comparative media I want to uh, talk about today might be described as comparative qualitative method. And there are three approaches to the qualitative study of new media that I, I'm personally uh, interested in. Uh, they're not by any means mutually exclusive, and indeed they might, there might be much to be gained by uh, thinking from all three points of view together. And the, uh, well, that was my first slide. The um, first I'll describe as formalist, and its point of departure is identifying the specific qualities uh, of a particular media form. Uh, its practice is a close reading of the media artifact. It's interested in uncovering uh, codes at work, whether those codes are uh, machinic or linguistic or some other kind of sign. And the second uh, method I'm interested in is what you might call the ethnographic. And its point of departure is identifying the specific qualities of social interaction that a given media form affords. Uh, its practice entails field work within mediated social relations. It's interested in discovering the participatory dimension of the production of meaning and knowledge. But I think there's also uh, a third approach to the qualitative study of media, and I'd call it uh, critical. Its point of departure is the proposition that neither media forms nor social media participation exist as neutral objects of scholarly observation. Both media forms and media socialities are byproducts of larger social and historical forces, or in short, that neither power nor interest can be bracketed off in advance. The critical approach to new media takes any given phenomena within uh, that space to be an effect of a larger totality of forces, a totality which cannot be assumed to be benign or to even necessarily to add up. The critical approach, in short, 
is normative. Its aim is no less than to anchor the production of knowledge, not only about media, but also in media by framing it as part of a project. And that project uh, might be defined as follows. How is it possible for us to become knowing producers of our own world? Can media be part of this larger project of knowing the world and in knowing it, transform it in such a way that it is habitable and, sustain and sustainable for as many of us as possible? And the name, I think, for this uh, project is Praxis. Praxis is, in essence, what uh, Walter Benjamin is talking about in his famous essay, in the work of art in the age of mechanical reproducibility. Uh, there, photography and cinema are instruments through which vision is democratized, but not just for the hell of it. It's with a view to producing a world that is habitable. One of the problems of scholarship is that we too easily become like the uh, drunk who went looking for the car keys under the street light, even though the keys were lost in the bushes. Uh, but why search in the bushes where it's dark, where under the street light there's light? You know? So we're looking where there's light rather than necessarily where the problem is, with apologies to our uh, stylish of the moment. Hence, it seems methodologically convenient to pursue uh, what one might call a formalist or ethnographic reduction. Let's bracket off the social relations and consider the media object as an instance of certain codes at work. Let's look at it as text or as tech. Or let's bracket off the codes at work in text and tech and consider the agency of users as if it were a kind of authentic and innocent gesture, as if here was uh, where we got to see people being themselves. So the formalist and ethnographic approaches show their limitations, particularly when they try to anchor themselves normatively. Both stake a claim to be critical methods, but the limitation appears when they try to posit one might, what one might call good practice. And I think for the formalist method, good practice is always something akin to a fine art, since it's not terribly interested in the question of a larger social practice of knowing and transforming the world, it settles for the artwork as a kind of utopia of formal innovation or purity. For the ethnographic method, good practice is always something akin to a folk art. Since it is less interested in the question of technical or aesthetic form, it settles for the social world that seems innocent of such questions, which creates its own sense, even if not with the means of its own choosing. So perhaps it's a question of ambition, but I see uh, a critical approach to media as a critique not just of media, but as offering critical insight into the world. It's not just about building a better website. Critique, uh, after all, has uh, two meanings. First, it's about knowing the limits to a given practice of thinking. But secondly, it's about knowing the limits to a certain practice of life. It's about being able to understand how a given frame of reference limits thought. But it's also about the attempt to leap outside that frame of reference or to think otherwise. Uh, some examples, like a lot of people, I was very interested in the way digital technologies made copying so much easier. It struck me that file sharing was a social movement in all but name. And the main way this was thought, though, was uh, at the start of the decade at least, was in legal terms. The media industries wanted and got a punitive intellectual property regime with certain brave souls, uh, while certain brave souls rushed to the defense of a creative commons and a more liberal interpretation of the law. But what both sides had in common was the law. The Creative Commons approach still thinks the question in terms of property. So would it be possible to think these phenomena outside the category of property? And in A Hacker Manifesto in 2004, what I wanted to do was move away from the centrality of the legal frame of reference. 
rather than think about transgressions of the law, I wanted to think in an affirmative way about certain creative practices. Who are those who create the new? And borrowing a little from uh, MIT's central role in defining new spaces of creativity, I called them hackers. But where I want to uh, extend the use of that term beyond the realm of computing, with which it's tended sometimes uh, to be associated, is it not a great uh, uh, Saxon verb to hack? You know, I wanted to restore a fuller sense to this lovely word. If hackers create the new, who ends up owning and controlling the power of what they create? And more to the point, what is this new kind of power? So A Hacker Manifesto is a book about uh, the rise of what I call vectoral power, namely uh, a power based on owning information but also on owning the means of relating bits of information together, and, and perhaps more crucially it's the relating together. So if there is one refinement I would want to offer to that book is that the strategy pursued by some companies of vigorously policing the ownership of all kinds of information seems to be really not all that uh, promising or interesting. I mean, you can only sue your own fans you know, for so long. Uh, more interesting is the possibility of control over the relation of bits of information to each other. So while uh, Google, for example, is rightly uh, protective of its patents and trademarks, its main interest is in control over the relation between information. It's moved, if you like, to a higher level of the organization of information and staked its claim to ownership there. And one of the consequences of the freeing of information from scarcity, uh, from the scarcity of a material support, is that it becomes harder and harder to think of any particular information as having any particular value. So it seems to me a central uh, question, and it's both a, a business question and a cultural one, is how can rarity be re-established in a realm of uh, uh, almost uh, uh, instant and cheap copyability? So Google offers one approach. Information is just contingent bits. Uh, but which can be brought together uh, meaningfully by an algorithm responding to an individual's desire. Another approach is Facebook. Information is meaningless unless someone we know thinks it has particular value. And a third option is, I think, offered by games, particularly multiplayer ones. Information, information has value if it is made rare by being the stake of a game. And this was the proposition that uh, I wanted to address in uh, Gamer Theory in 2007. The dominant ways of thinking about games seem to me uh, to be uh, interested mostly in the growing world of massively multiplayer games where the game itself could be bracketed off in the interest of studying the game as a social or economic world. I was kind of struck by the rush to look at the multiplayer as a way of actually not thinking about the sort of weird relation of the body to the machine and so forth. And I wanted to return to that piece. Uh, so I wanted to focus on the phenomenology of the game-to-gamer relation or the, the human-machine relation in the specific context of the game. I was struck also by uh, how much optimism uh, there was about the game as uh, pedagogy. And uh, I'm certainly not opposed to games as a teaching method. And at uh, Lang College, uh, I've been very interested in starting an initiative on social games, particularly for freshmen. Well, this is uh, uh, some students of mine playing, playing uh, dodgeball in the courtyard in uh, Princeton Review. Uh, which all the students read, of course, before they choose colleges. It says the typical Lang student was the kid who was the target in dodgeball. So my students decided to own dodgeball. It's so like, you know, owning the slur by which they are addressed. But, but then it's building that up into a whole uh, practice of the game for an urban college. Uh, but it seemed to me there wasn't much attention being paid to the question of the limits to what games might teach us. Do games have an ontology? That seemed to me to be a reasonable question. What I found was that uh, games do indeed have a quite specific ontology. Games arrest the apparently endless proliferation of meaning by restoring value to the sign, but they do it in a particular way. 
The value game science is determined algorithmically. Games are algorithmic allegories for the world. They restore to the gamer a sense of being in the world, but the world in which the gamer finds her or himself is the world of the game, and the game can only apprehend the world as value and algorithm. This, incidentally, is a picture of my workplace. Uh, this is uh, Vera. You've just seen Felix uh, with the computer in the back. This is by way of explaining why uh, I, the, the next set of PowerPoint slides are all drawn with markers. So having written one book about hackers and another about gamers, I started to wonder about uh, what, what one might call personas. So gamer and hacker might be examples of persona. Uh, what are the forms of subjectivity that the digital world uh, affords? Here, uh, the formalist method might actually have something very valuable up its sleeve. Uh, A.J. Grimus, uh, the Lithuanian linguist, uh, gave us the uh, Grimus square, or the semiotic rectangle. Uh, and so what I decided to do was put gamer and hacker as the first two terms uh, on the Grimus square to see if I could start to deduce other personas from the structure of relations uh, that one might generate out of these two particular terms. So gamer and hacker are different figures, but they're not uh, actually opposites. So what might be the opposite of gamer? Uh, I think actually it's the figure of the worker. Uh, the gamer's labors are for symbolic gain. Uh, the worker's labors are for actual money. And what might be the opposite of the hacker? And here I'm going to uh, take my term from at least uh, American uh, commercial hip hop. I'm going to call it the hustler. Uh, the hacker labels for symbolic recognition from uh, her peers. The hustler wants to buy, sell, or to pimp uh, what someone else labors for, but for cold hard cash. So once we have the four terms, we can see that uh, worker and hustler are aligned on one side as uh, in relation to a money economy, uh, while hacker and gamer value a sign economy of recognition. Uh, worker and hacker might be inclined to think in class terms of shared interest, but gamers and hustlers are pure competitive individualists. And here I was also trying to map out uh, the kinds of things that you might parcel out under each term. Uh, the hustler buys, sells, trades, is interested in angles. Trust is very important, but advantage is the thing that you want. Uh, the gamer is about rank, mastery, agon, the win-lose condition. Uh, the worker is more likely someone interested in a desk job, in security, the nine-to-five, healthcare, wage, labor. Another hacker I put peer-to-peer, -peer, commons, a prestige economy, the idea of the artisan, uh, and the figure of cooperation. Uh, and, of course, once you do the Grima Square, you've got to build it out to the next uh, level. Uh, and so it's maybe exchange value is what connects the figure of uh, hustler and worker. Sign value is what connects figure of gamer and hacker. The economies are interested in are much more symbolic than actual cold hard money. Uh, but worker and hacker are, I think, forms of uh, collective identity, whereas hustler and gamer are figures premised on uh, certain kinds of status. Uh, and I'm taking the... Uh, lyrics of commercial hip-hop to be my guide to uh, the figure of the hustler. You can sort of think about uh, different kinds of relation to the new media economy. Uh, the figure of the creative industries seems much more to be uh, a little bit of a sleight of hand about the relation between uh, worker and hacker. A figure like uh, the, you may know the story of uh, gold miners uh, who don't like being called this, but people uh, in China who are working in sort of sweatshop conditions, uh, digging out the valuable items from massively multiplayer games so they can be sold on eBay to people in the developed world. This is a, a famous story. There's now a documentary about it. Uh, 
but it's, it struck me as uh, nicely kind of affecting the figure of uh, hustler and gamer. Uh, those who can do, those who can't consult, I put consultancy over on the gamer corner, and the startup dreams seem to me to be uh, over on that part of the, the diagram. You start to think about how different uh, tools that we use in this environment then start to be mappable in terms of this uh, set of terms. Uh, eBay is clearly the fantasy space of the hustler. Uh, LinkedIn is probably closer to the, uh, the worker who wants to be uh, the hustler. Uh, Creative Commons, World of Warcraft is kind of iconic figures of the, the figure of that. Uh, hacker and the gamer, respectively. You can play this game forever, and the beautiful thing about uh, Grima Square is after a while it starts to not work and the whole thing implodes. Uh, if we've done a little deconstruction 101, you expect this, but then you build the whole thing all up again and you, and you kind of per, uh, permute, permutate the terms uh, and start to look for other sort of structures of meaning that one can kind of create. Uh, all right, I'm just trying to figure out where I am. Okay, so. Uh, this was actually uh, the uh, little talk I did for uh, a conference we had at Lang College just a few weeks ago called Internet as Playground and Factory, uh, organized by uh, my colleague Trevor Schultz, uh, where what Trevor was doing was to really put uh, what he and I share, this critical approach, on the, to Internet studies kind of on the map, if you'll pardon the pun. But uh, my main thought during and after that event is that we have to take a step back from thinking about labor and play in the internet, and hence my attempt to create the four-term matrix, even though at some point that also starts to, to kind of implode. But I, I really think it's uh, an interesting juncture to think about, you know, what exactly is labor, uh, and what are the boundaries of labor? What exactly is play, and what are the boundaries of play in the particular kinds of both uh, exchange value economy and sign economy that we're now creating? The critical perspective, I think, is in a nutshell, though, about praxis, uh, which is always something more than labor and play. And in fact, what the four figures uh, might add up to is uh, some parceling out of the problem of praxis, which, just as a uh, reminder, would be that sense of is there a way that mediated practices enable us to uh, know a world and actively transform it in a way that uh, sustains its habitability. So that, if you'd like, would be the overall framing device within which we would then start to look with, for these figures and to ask whether there's a useful or not useful parceling out of praxis between these different uh, modes of interaction in which we're all engaged. Now, it's not that uh, what we used to call cyberspace, that dates me, doesn't it? It's not as if uh, that space entirely uh, does, does away with old figures of identity, and I don't want to suggest that these persona uh, entirely erase uh, other kinds of identity that people might have. Although a hold on the project might be to ask how they interact with other kinds of identity in interesting and complicated ways. How are the four figures gendered, for example? Uh, and it's uh, uh, certainly not the case that something like the figure of race disappears when one starts to look at uh, this particular universe. Uh, in gamer theory, I was interested uh, in picking up the thread of the question of race in relation to uh, new media. And I looked at two games uh, in particular, uh, Deus Ex and The Sims. Uh, Warren Spector, who was one of the creators of uh, Deus Ex, was very proud of the fact that 
when the player created a character, the character could be either gender, and the game would redact the pronouns for it, which at the time was something new, and could be one of any three skin colors. The thing is that none of, neither of those variables of gender or, or the color of the character actually affected the game at all. Uh, it had absolutely no impact. It had no algorithmic value whatsoever. Uh, likewise in The Sims, uh, race becomes a difference without a difference. It makes no difference to anything if your character is black, white, or brown. So in short, the game embodies a sort of liberal understanding of race as kind of skin deep and creates a kind of liberal utopia where it doesn't matter. But would it not be more interesting in a game like, say, Grand Theft Auto, where if you're white and steal a car, the cops chase you and arrest you, whereas if you are black and steal a car, they shoot you dead on the spot? Like, that would actually seem to me to be a more interesting way to figure a difference. Now, of course, there would be howls of protest, and this would be seen to be problematic, but would it, in fact, not be a kind of more interesting result? Games, in short, fight shy of engaging difference as inequality. The Sims is instructive on how another kind of difference works in uh, this sort of algorithmic way that I was attempting to describe in Game of Theory. Race doesn't matter, but certain variables of character matter a great deal. A character, for example, uh, can, for example, be more or less outgoing, and the upper reaches of certain professions are not readily available to characters with uh, low scores on that particular variable. So in short, uh, it's a universe where subjectivity falls into categories and a good algorithmic society makes use of different subjectivities, regardless of race, uh, for each uh, set of variables is functional in its own particular way. So in short, games are a kind of curious utopia. Unlike the great utopian uh, utopias of literature, games don't specify the particulars of a good life or assign it to a particular place. Rather, they see the utopian as a question of the perfect functioning of the algorithm. The game is a neoliberal paradise. It's where the playing field really is level. It's where everyone confronts the game as formally equal and where the best competitor wins. But games are also part of a process by which play seems to be becoming absorbed into a functional role in economic life. For uh, Johann Huizinger and uh, Roger Calois, which for uh, people studying games are like foundational pieces of, uh, of literature. But for them, uh, whatever the social and historical merits of games, they cease to be games if their role becomes directly economic. For them, the game was by definition outside immediate function. Uh, the same could be said uh, about uh, the figure of the creative commons. There's something uh, just a little boring to me about, uh, provocative, I'm going to say this, something a little boring to me about uh, uh, Benkler or Lessig proposing that the commons uh, is really not a break with the traditions of uh, the kind of uh, uh, American neoliberal economic space. It's just kind of more of the same. It's the perfection of it. And this, to me, seems kind of similar to uh, the quasi-utopian space that the game produces. It's kind of more of the same. It's the perfecting of the existing rather than a break, a qualitative change, something different. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with uh, the liberal tradition. It's just that the critical approach to media, in my view, always seeks out at least a kind of crack through which to see daylight between the proposition of what could be and the relentless presence of what is. Uh, it isn't the role of knowledge just to affirm what is, but also to propose what could be. And sometimes it's the role of knowledge to map out not just what is possible, but also the impossible, so that we can see our society in negative, but see it whole in, in the mirror of the, the world that isn't possible at all. 
So in recent work, I've wanted to look at really bold, even impossible, and even, I have to say, crazy, imaginings of what this world of ours could and couldn't be. But I've had to go back uh, half a century to find a really viable tradition for such social imagining. I had to take a step back in order, I think, to take, I hope, eventually two steps forward. So the moment I decided to return to is a moment in the succession of the historic uh, avant-gardes. Uh, Fred Turner, this was the first book that I, I did along these lines. Fred Turner has shown uh, eloquently how the Bay Area's avant-gardes offer a continuum from counterculture to cyberculture. That's the name of uh, a book by him, from counterculture to cyberculture. My interest is in a mostly uh, European sequence that runs more from the futurists to Dada to the surrealists and the situationist international, uh, 1957 to 1972, which some would say is the last of the classic or heroic avant-garde movements. Avant-gardes have uh, a couple of uses for pedagogy. Uh, first, they sit uh, askance the divide between folk art and fine art. Generally, they aim at the destruction of the reigning fine art and appropriate for their own purposes some elements of folk art. They end up being uh, recuperated in various ways by both. And one can think of uh, surrealism, for example, which is both now something canonic and something sort of incredibly everyday. Avant-gardes, I have to say, are also really, really fun to teach because they're always created by young people. Uh, but it's young people who've made incredibly different uh, choices at exactly the same uh, sort of life stage as, as my students or your students. Uh, but they do completely different things. So you can, you can do this thought experiment, right? Imagine you're 23 years old and you've gone to Paris and you decide to drop out of school. But the thing you do when you drop out is study really, really hard and create an organization. Like, what? You know, because not that I'm encouraging them to drop out, but they would usually think of it in terms of personal discovery and uh, self-expression and things like that. It's, no, 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 these people did something completely different. You know, so you sort of, you have the, the similar and the different as a teachable moment. So that's what I like about avant-garde. It's, you know, stuff you can do now at the age of 20 to 23. Uh, the situation is international I find uh, particularly useful uh, as a teachable moment because they pursued two ideas to the limit. Uh, one they called uh, detournement, uh, the detour. It's also the seduction. It also means hijacking uh, and permanent play. Uh, and this is... Uh, Guy Debord, who's on the far right, with a person who was unidentified woman for half a century. Her name, her name has finally surfaced. Uh, Aska Yorn and Michelle Bernstein. The thing I love about this picture is the wine stain on the table. You know, is, is this not your classic uh, avant-garde you know, information? And the work is uh, memoirs. Walter Benjamin talked about uh, work that would be entirely composed of quotation, but he didn't actually do it. Uh, Debord did. This is a work where every single word and picture uh, is from somewhere else. So in short, it's, uh, it's rip and mix, it's remix, it's mashup, but it's done in 1953, uh, but as a kind of totalizing project. Uh, so I'm kind of interested in avant-garde to the extent to which they really do anticipate uh, things that might uh, subsequently become uh, commonplace. And while the tournament, uh, it has a relation to collage and the, uh, the ready-made uh, it's distinctive because the situation is short, sort as a strategy for the permanent devaluation of art and culture. And to me, they actually really do anticipate that uh, devaluing of the value of any particular sign that is, I think, a very, very characteristic uh, feature of, of cultural landscape today. Uh, but they wanted to actually, if you like, plagiarize their way to uh, the formulation of a new relation of value. All the great avant-garde strategies get recuperated, and so you know, mashup and DJ culture, whether it knows it or not, 
uh, is detournement made every day recuperated as folk art. Uh, and I could say more about the fine art recuperation of these devices as well. Uh, but in the process, I think something of the totalizing ambitions of the Situationist International was lost. Uh, the scale of their ambition uh, can also be uh, really recognized in the work of uh, Constant Neuenhus. Uh, his project is called New Babylon. Uh, it's a utopian project which uniquely was supposed to cover the entire surface of the planet. Uh, so these uh, structures were to extend, interestingly, rather than uh, a world with national borders, it's a world that's completely networked. Uh, so he was imagining a, a complete spatiality of the network starting in around about uh, uh, 1957, and he continued this work till 1974, when he gave up and did something completely different. Um, yeah, so you Babylon, uh, the, the question that it, that it asks, I think, is what would the world look like if cybernetics really did abolish labor and usher in a world of permanent play? Uh, readers of uh, Rosalind Williams' amazing book on the underground will recognize uh, Constant as a rare example which combines the technospatial imaginaries of both Europe and America. Like a good European, as in, in Williams' terms, he digs down uh, so he locates his cybernetic factories, fat, uh, factories beneath the surface of the earth. Uh, but borrowing from the American uh, imaginary, it's sort of uh, uh, space frame superstructures spread out and cover the whole surface of the planet. And the condition of possibility for this is a separation of uh, cybernetics as control from cybernetics as freedom from necessity. So the two great themes about what, the, what we used to call the cybernetic, about what it might mean are here represented spatially. And as architecture, this is a project that's clearly ridiculous. But as an architecture of thought, as a conceptual architecture, I actually find it really valuable that he's asking a question about the relationship between the cybernetic as control and the cybernetic as, as freedom. And that if you, you, you have to separate the two out uh, for one to become the support system for the other. So cybernetics as control is below ground applied only to material things, cybernetic as play is up above in the human world. Uh, and he's absolutely right, I think, about one thing, which is that uh, what used to be called the cybernetic reorders spatial patterns and at the scale of the whole surface of the planet. Uh, so both uh, Hacker Manifesto and Game of Theory were attempts to rethink uh, the conceptual legacy of the situation. I only realized that after I'd written these damn books. I sort of thought, I was vaguely playing with this stuff. I need to actually go back and read it before I come forward again and think about where to go next. Uh, but I, there wasn't just a conceptual part to the work I was doing with those two books. I was also interested in practices of knowledge and how do we sort of rethink uh, writing strategies, for example. Uh, so with uh, Hacker Manifesto, uh, just one thing I was trying to do with that book. Oh, there's another nice picture of uh, constant space frames. Uh, I wanted to write a book intentionally that could be translatable, at least into uh, other European languages. Um, it's also in Japanese, but I have no idea. I can't even read what it looks like. Uh, but I wrote it to be translatable, at least into European languages. So I attempted to write this book in a language that doesn't exist. I wrote it in European, and I take... Yeah, I, I take European to be uh, equal parts Latin, Hegel, and business English. Like those strike me as being the three transcontinental uh, practices you know, of, of language making. Uh, so uh, I can actually read my own book in languages I don't speak, uh, and it's astonishing how much of it 
Uh, French I can actually read, but this, this, it reads exactly the same apart from the, the way you structure sentences, but the terms. Uh, because you know, so much of it's coming from, in this case, from a Latin uh, base in this particular paragraph. Uh, and it's in eight languages, but I can't speak for how it reads in Japanese. I'd love to know how this plays into that experiment. Uh, and the Greek one's interesting because uh, Greek, unlike other uh, major European languages, did not get its abstract vocabulary from Latin. Of course, it has its own. Uh, so the Greek one's almost impenetrable. Uh, the last um, uh, chapter is called World, which in Greek is cosmos. That's the only part I can recognize, literally on the page. Uh, now, with Gamer, I wanted to uh, create uh, a practice of collaborative knowledge that would work for critical thought, as, as well as blogs work for argument and wikis work for consensus. So I think we've got really good tools for uh, a sort of argumentative style, uh, the, the sort of, uh, uh, if you like, a, a legal understanding of how you arrive at truth for, through argument. And the wiki, I think, works really, really well for consensus, if that's the model. But they don't really work for critical thought, which is neither of those. If you've got an argument between two positions, the critical strategy is always to look for a third. It's always to look for a term outside of the argument. right? Uh, and it's the same with consensus. Uh, you know, with, with consensus, whatever it is, I want to be outside of it. Just sort of, I don't know, it's just a habit of thought. That's how I, uh, it's, it's how I think. And I think that's the critical gesture, is to withdraw uh, from consensus first. You might work your way back to it, but from a position outside. But how do we create tools for that? Because uh, it seems to me that the existing tools uh, didn't really service very well. I never got around to figuring out uh, internet uh, here, so I'm just going to fire up the demo that lives on my hard drive. It'll work. Here we go. So we started with uh, WordPress, and we built a plugin for it called uh, CommentPress. And this would be the first page. And this would be a page uh, for the project. And in very, very simple terms, we had this whole uh, index card metaphor thing, which turned out to be extremely difficult to actually code and to get not to make the whole thing fall over. And at the end of the day, not terribly interesting. The thing that I, I think was a real success, and comment press is now used by other people, is, and it's so simple, I still feel like an idiot even saying this is anything putting the comments next to the paragraph and linking them to the paragraph. And the reason for this is very, very simple, that uh, with a blog, people tend to, you know, there's a whole long screed that you read, and then you have a comment stream that goes underneath. And so it, what people do is they pick a particular bit of grammar to fix, or they make general statements about everything, right? Can you attach the act of commenting to the level of the paragraph was the particular thing that I wanted to achieve. Can you get it away from the general comment about everything to address the paragraph as a unit of thought? Because I think paragraph is a really particular and interesting lexical unit. Uh, Gertrude Stein says a sentence has a reason, but a paragraph does not. Right? Your computer can tell you if your sentence is grammatical, but it cannot tell you where to put the paragraph break. And it certainly can't tell you how to rewrite the paragraph around the break. There's, there's something almost analog about that. So uh, could we direct? Uh, comment to the level of paragraph was one of the devices uh, that we wanted to come up with. Uh, so we created this uh, structure through which to do that. Uh, and is it then possible to interact with different kinds of uh, readerships? And I'm interested in heterogeneous readerships. Uh, 
Although bizarrely, I thought when I did Hacker Manifesto, I was doing my like high theory book. Uh, it sold 10,000 copies. It's in eight languages. I get calls from telephone engineers who are reading it. So like you can be completely mistaken about what's readable to who, you know. But I wanted to write a book that uh, would be something that gamers would possibly read but feel challenged by. It doesn't speak down to gamers and audience. Uh, but it's, I, I hope it would be of interest to librarians, you know, people in information science, to people in media theory, to create a kind of heterogeneous relation between these readerships. Uh, I was interested in giving a book away uh, at a not quite finished stage. So rather than put up the PDF of the finished book and expecting people to comment on it, here's a mostly written book where your comments will be taken into account and that will end up shaping the book. So it's trying to kind of, if you like, craft a gift relationship with readers where I will give you the book, but if you give me your thoughts on it, that will actually materially change the book. I also offered to give the physical book to anyone whose comments were incorporated, which few people took me up on, interestingly, although some did. So in short, are there ways of uh, crafting uh, economies uh, and gift economies, if you like, of knowledge with heterogeneous kinds of readership, where there's recognition of different kinds uh, of skill and ability. One of the games I wrote about civilization, I couldn't actually play to the end. I failed over and over again to beat this game. <laughs> and the reason is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Marx and Hegel guy. We think historically. I thought I knew how world history is supposed to go. And the game had a completely different idea about world history. And I was just not getting that, you know. So uh, people, gamers, including some of my undergraduates, taught me things. And, and that was the kind of exchange, you know, uh, where you, we could work with, uh, work with people. Um, all right, I don't know how complete this actual, the demo version of it is. And, you know, there's a, a video of me in a, a talk show that's made using the machinima method. It's, it's in Halo, I think, that goes on the web. Uh, that's made with amateurs. I won't even get into all that. Uh, but with Institute for the Future of the Book, we were kind of exploring uh, the, the kind of uh, space where, particularly for me, where a critical knowledge might have its little niche. Uh, and, you know, that a few hundred people read and commented on this thing is good enough for me. I don't have to Wikipedia. I don't think the aim of the critical mode of knowledge is necessarily to reach mass audiences, but it is to reach heterogeneous audiences, and those to me are two different kinds of goal. Right? So it's, it should not be limited to a particular group, but it's available to everybody, but you have to think, and not everyone wants to do that. All right, so that was the uh, Game of Theory project, then it's in book form. Uh, and what, what becomes of the book is, uh, as someone who loves them, and I'm sure I'm not the only person here who does, you know, that's a, a kind of pressing problem. Uh, and I, I saw the book version of Gamer Theory as a kind of documentation of a process where the process is all still online and this is what it looks like. Uh, but that process has, has ended. People don't comment on it so much anymore because you can't affect the outcome, right? There is a, a finished version. And I've edited the comments. The good ones are in there with the spelling fixed and a little bit of grammar massaging and they're edited down. So it's a kind of um, summation. You know, the book is, uh, Walter Benjamin says, the, uh, the work is the death mask of its conception. And, and to some extent, that's it. You know? and, and, but this was the process of which the book ends up becoming the, the death mask, which um, people used to really value death masks. I don't want that to sound negative. You know, it could, could be a good thing. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, maybe a better word for it is book is souvenir. You know, the book is the takeaway at the end of the day.
All right, uh, let me go back to my uh, slideshow. There's more I could say about that. It was a very involved process. A wonderful collaboration with uh, Ifbook. Uh, where are we? So, yeah, I'm interested in uh, ways of creating uh, collaborative knowledge which extends beyond the university, which, but which maintains the critical tradition uh, as fully as other kinds of knowledge. Uh, and to me, it's in the tradition of Walter Benjamin working in radio. That, that to me is, I'm obviously not, I'm standing on the shoulder of giants here, but, but that is the tradition that I'm trying to honor. Uh, and hence, uh, uh, to give just uh, another example, my work on the situations international will include uh, the comic book, which we've called Totality for Kids. Uh, the situationists were famous for plagiarizing existing comic, comic, uh, comic books and inserting their theoretical discourse into the speech bubbles. Uh, what I'm doing here with the artist Kevin Pyle is the reverse, is it's their stuff in the speech bubbles, but we're creating new art around it uh, as a way of, I want to recover the tradition of, great 19th century tradition of illustration. Uh, why should theory books not be illustrated? You know, or, you know, why should scholarship not be illustrated? But how do you do that? And how do you do it when uh, I kind of refuse to pay uh, hundreds and hundreds of dollars to license photographs that were shot by people who are now dead? Uh, I just don't, I just refuse to do it. I'm just not going to pay for the images. I'm ha I would much rather pay a living artist uh, to create new stuff than pay, uh, uh, you know, a news corporation or whoever it is for the rights to use a photograph. It makes no sense to me. Uh, so I'm thinking of it as a way to reintroduce the, the category of illustration. This is all based on real historical photographs and so on. There's, there's some care that's been taken with doing it. Uh, but yeah, that's the, that's the little project that I have going there with Kevin Pyle. Uh, and lastly, you know, I'm working my way back to the present. Uh, a little project I'm doing with um, a collaborator in California uh, is uh, a study of the net time uh, reading list. It was a list server started in 1995. It's still going, but I'm only interested in the period uh, 95 to 2000. Uh, it's a sort of parallel to the work that uh, Fred Turner's done about uh, Stuart Brand and his friends in uh, California who created the well and so forth. So on a much smaller scale, but as a much more pan-European project, and that was much more in the critical theory tradition. You know, so net time I, I think of as this really interesting little archive that still has a lot of its original uh, structure intact. There's a, you can treat it as a database, so maybe there are ways of reading it uh, that are available. And it's an archive that's in the critical tradition that I can read formally as a humanist who knows how to read texts, uh, where I can ethnographically go and track down all of the people who are involved, some of whom are now uh, major players in new media uh, around the world, uh, both as academics and artists and on the policy front and somewhere in the corporate world, and track down the traces of how they went from this to where they are now. So that's the piece I can do ethnographically. Uh, but then I want to reach out to uh, colleagues who are able to do things like pass uh, the database and diagram it as a, uh, as a relational model, right? Or who can... Uh, use the fact that it's a digital archive to really look at uh, how we can understand that uh, using the computer as a tool to, you know, starting with simple things like word frequency and things like that. Uh, so I wanted to combine the three approaches to the qualitative study and, and then, you know, make some overtures to working with the social science part of how you look at 
uh, new media. But using this really tiny little marginal archive is the way to do it, you know, to, to pick something that's got a certain salience, but it's small. There were never more than 3,000 people on it. Uh, and so the, the body of text is kind of manageable to do all of these things with myself and a, a few uh, collaborators. So in short, it's bringing together the formally ethnographic and the critical, and it's around an avant-garde. I mean, it's the people who are involved had ambitions to be the next Dada or whatever, and no one gets to be that anymore. But, but uh, uh, you know, it has that little element as well. It's kind of fun to show uh, students now that the, the fantasies that 20-year-olds had in the mid-90s about the cool, exciting stuff we were going to do. And, you know, of course, 20-year-olds uh, now, you know, the internet was always already there. It has no novelty whatsoever, you know. So even to introduce the idea that it ever had novelty is, is a kind of teachable moment, if you will. So that's um, uh, what I've been doing for the last few years, I guess, and getting it sort of more or less up to the present. And I hope uh, the, the last step into the past is this piece of work and then trying to work, come back more to uh, tackling, tackling the present. And I think after that is revisiting uh, the concepts I was trying to advance, particularly in Hacker Manifesto and see how they kind of stand up, uh, you know, what will be uh, eight to ten years later. Some of it works, some of it doesn't, and it's, it's one of those things where I get to kind of revisit that work and I hope uh, move it forward. So I thank you for your time. That is what I have. So um, time for questions. The microphone is for recording only, not amplification. My question is somewhat specific. Um, it has to do with the grime mass, actually, because it seems to be the grime mass in rectangle. Like the, one of the important relationships you didn't talk about is actually the relationship of inclusion between the so-called neutral terms and the ones. So I just want you to flesh that out for me. How does that relationship work? And to take it one step further, I mean, to think about the way, for example, Jameson uses the grime mass in square, it becomes in Jameson a moment that actually functions as something that discloses kind of an ideological totality. And even it works that way in Grimas as well. And since the idea of totalizing is so important for you, I want you to flesh out for me the relationship between totality and your sense of totality in critical practice. I mean, I, I, there's a Jamesonian sense of totality is a kind of strategic thing you have to do, in, uh, uh, which is why the Grimas thing becomes important. Mm. So those are the two kind of Grimas questions. There's one other, which is a um, slightly different question. And that's a, just a more specific one. I was a little... Take surprise earlier on the talk when you, having created your three methods, you immediately reify them into fine arts, folk art, and, and critical practice. Because it seems to me that if you look at folk art, for, folk stuff, for example, the history of formalism is, in fact, always goes towards folk art first. I mean, prop, I mean, the entire history that mm -hmm. builds upon the regularities of folk art, precisely the order generated its code, its structure. So that it seems to me that. To turn the method immediately and link it to objects oddly reifies them before the game is even started. And so I'm a bit, I was a bit taken aback by that, that move. I, I'm speaking more specifically about uh, work being done in uh, new media field. You're absolutely right about uh, prop and, uh, of course, uh, Jakobsen and so forth. Yeah. Uh, although, of course, they were also they had a very strong interest in contemporary poetry and they sort of go both ways. But it seems to me that. Uh, it sort of bifurcates a little bit in the new media field, the ethnographic approach uh, is mostly been recovering a sense of the folk art. And there, there are certain, there are certain almost emotional investments in that to do with its innocence and purity and authenticity and so on. 
that are worth a sort of a second look. I'm really all in favor of doing that kind of work, but some of the ideological terrain needs a little bit closer study. Whereas I think the, uh, and I'm not, when I say formal, I'm not really talking about formalism as a specific school coming out of, um, you know, Jacobson coming out of uh, uh, the East. He ended up at the New School, interestingly enough, which is where he met Levi Strauss. Uh, so it's, yeah, not quite looking at that particular piece of it. Uh, but that sense of uh, that what a humanist does is uh, study texts, look for codes, but where there are uh, privileged objects that are already able to refer to themselves as coding practices, and that's our finite privilege in that particular case. So that's to answer that question. Um, I probably can't at this point go back to all of the Grimus rectangle uh, piece and the original, uh, I had 10 minutes at the conference where I gave it, so you might notice it's, and here I gave the five minute version, so it's somewhat occluded. Uh, but it seems to me that you could actually more formally pursue uh, the study. I'm not sure I'd want to keep these four terms. Uh, and Jamison talks about this, that, that you spend half your time figuring out which terms to put on the square, and that's not wasted time. Like That's the process of, of trying to figure out what ideologies actually are. Uh, and clearly there's a little bit of Jamisonian DNA in, in my interest in this particular uh, device. And yes, I am trying to uh, map a certain kind of ideological terrain and how it's kind of passed out. Uh, even though those four terms aren't necessarily the four terms of self-understanding, that's not necessarily how. Uh, and obviously to call one of them hustler is like a joke in, in some respect. Uh, but yeah, it seems to work. Uh, but Fred doesn't talk about this so much, but it's in related the whole thing does actually collapse. Uh, Fred, I think, still got a little bit of faith, faith in that Levi-Straussian sense that once you've got the diagram... It's interesting term which is buried, and that becomes the way you link the political unconscious to one. That, that, exactly, that's yeah. That's how Jameson tends to undo the, the, the yeah. square. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, you can actually read um, all of Hacker Manifesto as my love-hate relationship with Fred. And um, um, I shouldn't say this with a mic on. He might have been one of the readers of it. There is a certain discussion that goes on there about it. Yeah. There's a lot more there, but I think I'll... Um, thanks for the talk. Uh, really interesting. I, I wanted to uh, pursue one of the threads you talked about. I guess I, I'm most interested in the ethnographic I mean, mm. and, and how uh, you do that and how you think about that. Uh, but I was also struck by, and I agree with uh, some of your statements about peer-to-peer -peer and file sharing and uh, the ways that Creative Commons and Lessig and Benkler, while you know, setting themselves up as the opposite, in fact, reproduce a lot mm. of the things going on. And I, I thought about this with music file sharing and, and downloading anime uh, and had looked at it initially as a kind of social movement, right? I mean, this is a rejection of property. It's a rejection of law. They know, the, they know it's law. They know it's property. And they've chosen to ignore that and say the value is elsewhere. The value is in something. And yet, I felt like when I dug into it, it was reproducing other problems, <laughs> especially for the anime downloaders. They said they would justify it on the basis of it being good for the industry. Mm. Uh, you know, this helps the industry because otherwise you wouldn't get access to this stuff. And, uh, and, and the flip side of the, the downloading is also that it's, it's sort of not 
rejection of consumerism, but hyper-consumerism, mm -hmm. you know, or consumerism without price, uh, which is not the same as rejecting capitalism. So I was just curious how you saw it as a social movement, and if so, what kind of social movement, and if there's an ethnographic portion, I'd be curious. Yeah, I'm interested in really uh, ambivalent figures. Like, I, I found the, what I call the hacker figure to be really ambivalent. It's, it's to have an ambivalent relation to property. Uh, you know, on, on the one hand, uh, other people's private property is a barrier to you, but you want to be able to monetize what you create. So you're in a, you know, you're in a contradictory location. And that to me was the whole interest, uh, was that it's not uh, a kind of a, a one or the other kind of figure. Uh, but I am interested in the way that um, social movements around information uh, challenge, uh, you know, sort of owners and proprietors of information. Uh, and and, and how it is, I would be of that school, and, it, and it's the Hart Negri school, that, that it is kind of driven from below. That it's the practices that drive either strategies of uh, punitive strategies of let's sue our fan, fans of our music, uh, or strategies of uh, recuperation in corporation. Or the really interesting one is, is to uh, just give up on owning information, but to own and control the relations between it. That, that strikes me as moving the game to another level. Uh, and, and it's interesting to me as a game that that's, you know, it's, it's the success of Google. It's, it's to, to realize that, uh, and you know, of course, uh, uh, Adorno and Horkheimer famously talked about the culture industry. Isn't Google pure negation of culture industry? It's absolutely indifferent to what you're searching for, right? Couldn't care less. And it's sometimes embarrassing. Uh, the racist images of uh, Michelle Obama. It's embarrassing what people search for to the company, how it starts to feed back into culture. But it's, it's pure non-cultural relation monetized. Uh, so that struck me as really interesting in terms of uh, a strategy that's way, way past the culture industry strategy. If I could just make a quick follow. Um, so in your, your game book has this sort of double life, right? It's online. Mm. We can see who's writing, what they're writing, all the misspelled words and grammatical imperfections. Mm. And there's the rewrite and the reinscription of your ideas and other people's ideas and your filtration of their ideas, any tensions there in terms of people's sense of ownership of their ideas and their, where on the web that's recognized, that's visible, and rearticulation in a print form with your name on the cover? I mean, how did that, any of these tensions, I mean, Ian is sort of oh, talking yeah. about here, yeah. that we can talk about with the anime community, mm. but we can also talk about in terms of individuals' sense of ownership over their own ideas or whatever. Did, oh, yeah, we went into it knowing that we'd have to be... Uh, attempt to be clear about what we were doing, but we didn't quite know what we were doing because we're inventing stuff. But then to uh, be open about that fact that where there were decision points that we would do it openly with our uh, community. So I, I think it was always pretty clear from the start that the whole thing would always be Creative Commons licensed. Mm -hmm. It was pretty clear from the outset that uh, I would incorporate comments I promised to ask for permission to do that, which I did. So I had to email everybody, uh, which turned out to be totally redundant. No one even expected to be asked, but people expected to be asked. Some people were still surprised that their comments were in the book, um, but mostly happily surprised. And that was when I reiterated the promise that I will send you the physical book, so you'll have a souvenir of your participation. The only people who uh, grumbled about it, I mean, in a good-natured way, were graduate students. And it's to do with... Uh, am I now the proprietor of their ideas? Do they get to have those ideas in their work? And 
and so forth. And, and my answer to that um, uh, actually quite seriously is, I'll write letters for you guys. You know, you, you've entered into a, a, a gift relationship where I owe you. And they're mostly pretty happy with that. Not that a letter from me is necessarily worth all that much, but it's not nothing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and we we're very, very alert to that. The only people who just really did not really ever get it was Harvard University Press. <laughs> uh, I've got to tell you, MIT Press is so, so far, far, far ahead uh, in just thinking about it. And the contract for this book has like handwritten redactions and additions. The actual legally binding contract. Uh, makes no sense. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, they're pretty happy just to experiment. Uh, and, you know, basically I went to them and I said, look, academic publishing is dead. We're living out the end days. Uh, why don't we try giving stuff away and see if it works? And the marketing people went for it. You know, I had to meet with marketing to do both these book projects and they went for it. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of, they're the only people who never quite got it. But... They, they live with me because uh, I make money for them, you know. Paradox of paradoxes. I'm really fascinated by everything that you've talked about, and I was especially fascinated by the interweaving of your own narrative, of your, of your own development through these books mm -hmm. with the theories that you're interested in. And I wondered... I don't think anybody at age 15 says, I want to be the next Horkheimer, or I want to be the next <laughs> um, Benjamin, or whatever. Maybe Benjamin, but I doubt it. So what did you want to be when you were 15? What were you reading at that time that led you on this intellectual uh, pathway? I'm, I'm very curious to know what kind of art forms or cultural objects you grew up in love with that led you to this rarefied kind of world of theory. Um, one answer I can give to that, it's a little bit specific to the Commonwealth world, which is Penguin books. That I grew up in a house of uh, what are now Penguin modern classics, but they weren't classics then. They were, you know, I still have a uh, Penguin first edition of Orwell's 1984, uh, which of course the pages are all crumbling to dust because it was like printed Paul on. Like Mayer's Folly was one I had picked yeah. up at some bookstore. They were all, they all had the same kind of covers. Yeah. So I, I read, uh, uh, my mother died when I was six, but I had a book collection, and I read my mother's collection of modernism. And that, to me, was probably foundational, because you can then, you can read, you know, uh, Benjamin, for example, uh, really quite easily at age 20, if you've read a whole bunch of modern literature, you know, 19th, 20th century modern literature as a teenager, because it's what, it's the world that formed him, or one of the worlds, you know. So yeah, I was reading, you know, Sartre in Penguin Paperback, Hi, Ken. Thank you for the talk. Um, you pointed to a few teachable moments, like, yes, children, there was a before the internet, but you'll never know it. I want to ask you to maybe roll that out a bit further in terms of a critical media approach. In what way are you thinking of it as teachable? Because you have a, a searing body of work and way of thinking but what happens when you bring it to the classroom? And specifically with the students here, we have many uh, students who are, they're thinkers, but they often are thinking through making. Mm. Um, and your comment about Google that it's, it's massive and it's without content, it's a structure. We're, we're working with platforms now. Um, 
some of the ways in which you're talking about critical practice belongs to historical objects that could be critiqued, where there were limits and you can bring in this Kantian notion and now perhaps we're in a moment where that's not actually, uh, you can't say the same thing. So I'm asking, how does it apply to working with a student body like this one and also the notion that you brought up of critique and uh, how does it apply to the world that we're looking at now? Hmm. Uh, Where I started teaching was the... uh, Institute of Technology in Sydney, uh, which was by no means MIT, but it was a quite similar student body in some regards in terms of their interests and so on. Uh, And what um, surprised me was um, uh, trying to retreat from a critical approach to study was less successful in really embracing it with those students. Uh, The texts that they have to read are actually really, really short, uh, like three pages of Benjamin will kick your ass uh, in a way that whole novels won't, you know. No offense to people who teach novels, but something, something about the whole structure of a novel, whereas three pages of, of Benjamin to make somebody you know, sort of really work with that. Uh, I do like to make it relatable to uh, everyday experience, but, uh, and this is a classic formalist uh, device, defamiliarization. Is it a way that you can make uh, the experience of uh, immersion in contemporary media uh, unfamiliar? Is there a way of taking away the... Uh, unthinkable uh, immersive quality of it uh, is, is very, very important to me. Uh, but not everything works w- with every student, which is why um, some students need to be able to make something. Some students, the ethnographic stuff works really well. You can send them out and they'll go and uh, observe other people doing something and, and report on it really well. Uh, some students are really good at the formal piece. Uh, they can actually pick apart a text. Uh, uh, People who are actually really good at math are actually surprisingly good at picking apart texts in certain ways, just for example. Um, so to me, it's to have a few sort of teaching methods and to not necessarily privilege my own one as uh, either as a researcher and certainly not as a teacher as the one. So this might be how I prefer to see the world, but not everyone does. So uh, here's the approach that works over here and there's something, got to have something for everyone as a teacher. I'm going to do this part of the exercise as well. So for example, my game course involves uh, close reading of certain fundamental texts like uh, Oisinger. Uh, it involves making a game, uh, but with sticks and bits of paper, you know, that sort of making, game making. Uh, ethnographic study of play. Uh, many of my students are nannies, so I've got really great field work with, you know, like <laughs> Manhattan children, which is truly scary, you know. <laughs> uh, so it's, to me, it's like combining those approaches so that uh, students, A, get to do something they're relatively good at, but get challenged by modes of thought in which they're not, but should be. I wanted to go back to the four terms that you were using, gamer, hacker, worker, hustler. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed to me that at least three of those terms, and, and the gendering of the terms, you sort of skipped over that quickly. It seems like at least three of the terms are heavily gendered as you think about mm. them. And even your conceptualization of gamer with, you know, Agon, the win-lose um, seemed very, you know, like a masculine form, even as much as the game audience has changed over the years. Mm. And I wanted to know, you know, do you see that gendering as productive, um, you know, for an argument you're trying to make? Do you see that as some baggage that you're trying to get around now that you've got those things in the square? Or just how are you thinking about that in relation to those terms? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, and the, 
there are actually some other um, terms that didn't make it on the square, and at some point that would be one of the, you know, what's the, you know, what's the fifth term would be the overturning to be able to ask that question. Yeah. No, I think that would be interesting to try to figure out. There is a sense that uh, all four of the terms um, are, have a particular relation to masculinity, which I think would be actually worth exploring on its own before asking that question, as how does masculinity get passed out into those four uh, categories. And then the second question is, uh, how is the other gender absent uh, from the asking of the question? If I may, hmm. Jay-Z says ladies can be pimps too. And I thought... But, the, but it's the qualification. It's, 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 it's like, oh, you can be included, but yeah. you don't get to own the category. Oh. Yeah. So that's why you'd want to kind of overturn that, I think. Um, I, I kind of want to return to the question of the avant-garde, where you say you have to go 50 years back to sort of find something that, that works. And I'm, a, I'm a little curious to know whether you see sort of contemporary praxis, especially in uh, youth-oriented peer production in, in new media as, I mean, in a, in a sense, I, I thought it was interesting that you noted that commonplace techniques today like remix and mashup and so forth uh, have these, these precedents in earlier avant-garde practice. Do you not see them as serving not necessarily the same, but any kind of critical function today? Is it, is it because of the ease with which they're punished or recuperated or um, in whatever ways you've looked at these things? I'm interested in music and dance, but there's, mm. there's, there's, there's a lot of ways of thinking about this kind of cultural production. Um, I don't know, are you seeing some, some potential for, for what appealed to you in those earlier avant-garde? You know, the, the, they can be the most, uh, in the fine art world, the most kind of like boring work these days tends to cite Dada and particularly Duchamp. Uh, whereas, where is Dada now if not 4chan? You know, it's, it's kind of pure and, and unadulterated, you know, like uh, Zara would have loved it in, in some, you know, if I could channel him, you know, he would have loved it, I, I suspect. Uh, but that leads you to two questions. One, does it have the same uh, critical force as Dada? And that's a question to leave open. The uh, next step is to think it the other way around. Did Dada actually have that force itself? Or was it really more like 4chan would be the way that you can make that, you know, make it sort of flow in both directions. You can imagine scholars in 50 years' time, you know, sort of uh, uh, doing 4chan studies uh, which is an incredibly ridiculous little bit of the internet for folks who haven't been there. But you might have heard of like the lol cats thing, for example. That's like pure 4chan. That's you know, probably where it started. And uh, someday someone might find out, you know, exactly you know how that uh, particular thing happened. So yeah, I'm um, not uninterested in the question of whether some of the classic uh, avant-garde devices of uh, particularly of negation strikes me as an interesting one, whether it can still work, whether it's, uh, or whether the argument made in the sort of so-called postmodern moment that the avant-garde's dead, you can't do this anymore, I'm not entirely convinced. I think there is still a way to uh, reimagine uh, you know, those kinds of strategies. And what I'm interested in looking at net time is that it was an attempt to, you know, self-consciously, that's the other thing about avant-garde, they're all self-conscious about their ancestors in a way. So in a sense, 4chan is pure spontaneous data. Uh, but uh, avant-garde's are very, very self-conscious of their ancestry. Sure. And uh, so, yeah, it strikes me as a, you know, the question is interesting to me. The fact that I don't have an answer is a reason to pursue the question. Just as a follow-up to that, is there a high culture now that a data can play out against? Well, that's, that's the thing, is, is there's, uh, 
I mean, the Lacanians would call it decline of symbolic efficiency. You know, signs have to actually have some value in order to be able to attack them. And there are certain signs that you can get in a lot of trouble for attacking. But they tend to be sort of somewhat special case now. Uh, you know, it's, it's legal to burn flags. You know, that's the argument's about whether it's legal or not, you know. Um, so, you know, when uh, proto-situationists um, uh, took over the pulpit of Notre Dame on Palm Sunday and announced the death of God, you know, the Swiss guards drew their swords. You know, it, it was... Uh, and they were lucky to be caught by the police, you know. Uh, but then in the press, it's like... Uh, and I can't remember the headline, but it's, uh, you know, three geniuses, three idiots, you decide. You know, like the... Even combat the left-wing paper. This was its, the way it was sort of understood. There's already a decline in symbolic efficiency. You know, so what? So they, it's a little prank. You know, it's just the church. Whatever. You know. So yeah, I'm not sure that uh, critical strategies of the avant-garde kind can work in the same way. They might have to work through other devices. Uh, one that's been much discussed is over-identification. You get more purchase by really, really strongly appearing to believe something than by trying to dislodge people's belief. Because there's not, and you see with our students, they're mostly blasé about everything. Uh, so if, if there's a, uh, a form that ideology takes now, it's kind of blasé, it's indifference. But that is the ideology. It's not detachment from ideology, it is ideology. So how do you detach people from their detachment? It becomes a kind of you know, somewhat interesting question. This may follow from that or not. I'm trying to think through a lot of things at once. Um, but perhaps if I was describing my students here, I would say there's less blasé than there is um, possibly a sort of naive forward look. It goes with MIT's own ideology, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I'm thinking back to where you started with a tripartite method, which sounded to me totally commonsensical, apt, and familiar to me as someone who works in traditional media. That is, I wouldn't expect myself to have done a good job talking about drama if I hadn't included things like the social surround, you know, the socio-political impotence or not, as well as the formal qualities, et cetera. So it seems to me we've had those tools around for a while, and what you were pointing out also in response to Shankar's question was that perhaps there isn't that kind of layering in the discussion of new media per se. And then I'm trying to put it together now with what you are doing as someone who advocates the critical method to the new media today. Because what I came away from was more of the enthusiasm and the interest and cool things. But I didn't get the edge of critique having any particular resonance beyond it's open. I mean, you're extremely open and that's cool. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, what's at stake for you as a critic in socio-political terms? Is it outmoded of me to say that? Is it sort of like I'm part of the avant-garde moment or, or what? Um, well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm always uh, more than a little uh, seduced by the technological sublime, which is probably why I'm here interviewing for a job at MIT. You know? uh, uh, but, I, but I want to, you know, uh, it's probably more of the order of, you know, two cheers for the technological sublime rather than three, if I can... Uh, so you really are a modernist. Yeah, oh, I, I'm, I'm an unrepentant modernist. Yeah, I have to confess. Unrepentant modernist. Uh, and I'm, I'm borrowing that from Foster, I think, the two yeah, cheers yeah, thing. Exactly, that's what um, I'm saying. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I've, um, I've not uh, 
you know, I, I was tempted to actually read directly from uh, uh, particularly gamer theory, uh, which, which is my really bleak and negative, uh, it's all gone to hell in a handbasket book on one level for people who actually get to the last chapter. Uh, is kind of how it goes. But the trade-off with the uh, creation of a sort of algorithmic space that encompasses the whole surface of the planet, which is, that's to me is sort of what's happened, is we made the planet, the, the game space, the game board. Uh, you can think of GPS satellites, you know, kind of will give you a, a location for everything. Uh, you can put a price on any resource anywhere and relate it to any other resource anywhere. So that to me is the total game space. Uh, but it comes at the price of a kind of um, uh, self-inclusion of everything within an algorithm that loses uh, sight of the material resistance to that very world. And the two are you know, kind of headed for some kind of calamity. Is that, so. is that where the Plutonic cave thing goes? Yeah, so the book opens with, uh, it opens with Plato and ends with Derrida. Uh, but it opens with uh, the strategy is that you have to go, you have to return to the cave and stay there kind of thing. Uh, that there's more to be learned by understanding uh, the sort of algorithmic game than by trying to break it or be outside it. Or, so I'm actually refusing the romantic uh, gesture, which I think is very, very common in the attempts to do critical media studies, is it's, you know, can, can we kind of break the game and be an outsider or, and, and, or, it's like, no, actually, it's much more interesting to be much, much more, to embrace it completely, over-identify with the figure of the gamer in everyday life. But by reaching a sort of self-understanding of that figure is one that can come to a uh, very, very intense sort of phenomenological understanding of game space, uh, but not of its separation. Uh, from another world on which it is dependent. Uh, so it's no accident the game I end with is Sim Earth. Uh, Will Wright's failed attempt to create a global warming game. Failed in the sense the game's actually great, but no one bought it and there's no sequel. You know, because you can't win. <laughs> it's a no fun game in that regard. So, uh, whereas Hacker was my optimistic, it's all doable social movement book, and this is my, you know. But, but it is sort of interesting mm. in terms of your uh, invocation of New Babylon huh? as one of the, the first instantiations of a network mm. and as part of an avant-garde movement, what makes that work is its, its distance from the world of real power because then it does become sort of a, 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 a locus of insight. Mm. But then if you think about it, what you just said, right, in terms of the inside position and go back to the cave, then in fact global finance markets that have been around for centuries mm. or the electric grid or the telephone grid become wonderful sites of cybernetic, of mm. feedback and control. Mm. You read guys like George Zoros who are critically aware, very self-conscious yeah. about the sort of game-like structure of this. Uh, it does lead to a kind of interesting space and almost mm. trivializes the role of the avant-garde other than a sort of nudge in our, in, our, in our ribs to help us to see a little more clearly that which, in fact, w within which we're immersed. Mm. I mean, it's a curious, it leads to a curious space. Soros only said this once, but, but he was trying to explain uh, why he had a particular insight into how financial markets work. And his answer was because he'd studied Hegel and Marx. Now, he didn't make the mistake of saying this twice, but it's in one of his earlier books, you know, because it's, it's sort of... But he's kind of right that, that this was ways of thinking about uh, complex systems that are actually not self-regulating, uh, where the, the belief in the self-regulating has to be kind of questioned. And of course, he famously made his money understanding how they're not homeostatic. Uh, and there's apparently some folks have done it again with the 
the latest financial crisis, there are books starting to come out on you know, who, the, uh, uh, who the Hegelians were in this particular moment. You began by talking about the necessity of critique as a kind of thinking from outside and the category of formalism was proportionately devalued to the extent that critique became the privileged term. But in q and I'm hearing you mount from various perspectives, both from teaching and research angles, a kind of defense of a formalist practice and a sense that... And a ethnography. And, and a sense that a formalism might not proved to be an obstacle to critique so much as a path to it. And so I, I, guess, I guess I'm wondering if you could expand on that. Um, yeah, and, and there's, um, there's a tradition of this. It's, um, uh, is it not what the goal of the Frankfurt School actually was, was to do? They weren't doing ethnography, but they were doing social science, uh, but in the framework of critical theory. And they're not seen as uh, separate at all. They're also doing, uh, you look, and it's more people like Pollock, but who are doing uh, close studies of texts. So it's, it's the sense of this as uh, components of a project that can have relations to each other. You might think as well about Adorno's Kantianism, the, the sense in which what Adorno is chiefly attracted to in the third critique is this idea on Kant's part that the aesthetic idea is an idea without a concept that, that doesn't correspond to an extant concept. Mm. And so the aesthetic idea, rather than being limited by the what is of the world, might in turn have capabilities to construct new versions of the world. Precisely the kind of architecture of thought you were talking about in your talk would seem to be an area in which a particular kind of formalism might have that, that uh, sort of efficacy. Yeah. One, one could do that. I'm not the person to do it, given that Adorno's mother was an opera singer. He was tutored by Krakauer in Kant at the age of 15. And I was reading Penguin Modern Classics. You kind of got to know your limitations. Uh, and there's a certain uh, privileging of the aesthetic that I, in a certain way that I didn't want to do which is why I put Henri Lefebvre up there. Is there's kind of an alternative pathway where you can get uh, through the, the, the terrible years of the 20th century through a different pathway than Adorno that's a little less explored. Uh, so it's through uh, 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 Lefebvre's embrace of the everyday uh, to get us out of the, the specificity of the aesthetic always being thought in terms of the artwork. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. That's why Lefebvre's there. That's, that's well, what he's in my role. Yeah, and that's a whole other fork in the road, and yeah, yeah. So I, I picked my guys, but that's it's a certain way of working. If, if you, isn't this the wonderful thing? We get to choose our ancestors. Right. You know, it's, that's the one thing we get to do uh, as scholars. So Ken, work. Thanks very much. Thank you, William. Thank you.